0: Good morning, family. Good morning, family. Morning. Morning. So wonderful to be together today. Thank you for those that are joining us online. I want to encourage all the men. I'm looking forward to spending part of the weekend also at the men's retreat next weekend. And you don't want to miss out on that. It's a great, fun time together. So if you haven't booked, then you can do so after the service. Please do that. I also would like to just update you on uh, just the process that we um, just made you aware of last year and asked your support in and that was with the building of our toddler's world and uh, if you come into the church on the main parking site you would have noticed how nicely that building is taking shape and that we're starting to enter into the final part of that building project and uh, remember the idea of it was to help our families particularly those with little ones toddlers to have the ministry all taking place in a Sunday morning in one place. In the past, and we currently still do, the toddlers meet over here while all the other children meet over there. And so if you're a child with age groups, differing age groups, you are walking the length and breadth of our property and getting your steps up for your exercise. But uh, we feel it would be so much better to have everybody in one space, and so therefore we launched into the building program. It's uh, wonderful today to say that we have received 75% of the pledge that you originally pledged, which was a 480-something thousand rand that was given towards that, as you can see there on the screen, 458,000 rand. 600, And uh, we're so thankful for that and fully expect that the rest will come in. We do, however, want to ask if if anybody still wants to consider to be part of this project, that you please can still do so. We are right towards the end. And we shorted about another 400,000 rand to get this project fully completed um, without having to finance it in any other way. So therefore you'll see on the seats just close to you there are some pledge forms available and as Hatfielders you know how we do the pledge forms and how to fill them in. They're very much similar as for instance the faith promise pledge and so I would ask you to just take up a pledge card and if you wouldn't mind just to consider to contribute towards this. Uh, Whether it's a, a monthly amount that you will give over the the next couple of months or whether it is an amount that you want to give just once off you can indicate that there. You can give via a debit order, you can do an EFT, you can do a credit card, you can pay cash if you need to, that you just need to be able to tell us that it is that. And um, we would certainly appreciate that. No amount is certainly too small for that and definitely no amount is too big to help us with just finishing that project to serve our children and our families better. So if you would like to fill this in, I would want to give you opportunity to do that now. There's there's a, a Containers in the throughout the building, you'll see them at the edge of the seats here in the bottom. There's some in the rows in the top. You'll see some plastic containers. And um, if you would like to fill in this pledge card, then you can please deposit this into that plastic container. We'll have some of the ushers walking around and just assisting with that also. Um, So please do that. And um, even if you want to, as if you're online, you can also go and do that online. Head to our website and there's a pop-up that will appear at the bottom of the screen where you can also give at any time. But uh, thank you so much for those that have contributed towards this and those that will consider to do so also today um, that we can finish this project well thank you very much for that okay are you ready for the word to jump in today into continuing our journey through the book of John in our series more fruit as we are considering just how do we grow in our fruit in the Lord last week we spoke about what that fruit is and I'll mention that a little bit later today but for today I want to jump right into John chapter 5 And um, please remember that John is recording specific events in the life of Jesus that he witnessed himself, that he saw, and that he taught about as his time, as he was a leader in the church, and ultimately then wrote about these to compile evidence for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when we read these stories we must always remember that every story is included for a specific reason and it tells us something specific about Jesus and the fact that he was the Messiah this is a in a sense a defense an argument that he's making for why Jesus should be seen as the Messiah that has come and is among us. So here we come to John chapter five and a miracle that occurs that John writes for us. And uh, also remember that we spoke about, John said, these are signs. Signs that point, that, that shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. And here we encounter another one of these signs. John five, verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one in the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. One One who has... One who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Here we find a very interesting event in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is in a place in Jerusalem that was well known and well visited during the time, particularly by desperate people. It seems that there was a superstition. And when you study the history of this and the commentators about this, somebody like Aldersheim who wrote in The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, they're quite clear that this is what they would call a healing cult and a place of superstitious spiritual activity. There was no evidence that this really was a place where people would get healed. There was also no evidence that it was really an angel stirring the water. It was probably, as you still find today, certain pools in that area, that from time to time there would be a bubbling under uh, that would arise because of just, you know some of the processes of the Earth. But a superstition developed around this pool. And it became this healing place. And the stories were spreading. And a bit of a cult developed around this pool. And people that were desperately in need used to go there and try and hope for a healing. It's interesting to note that this healing was not available to anybody that came into that water. It was only if you were able to get into the water first after the bubbling of the water. Now that in itself, most commentators will say, is completely inconsistent with the character of who God is and the way he operates. But there was the superstition that developed. And then, then people would sit there. And still today in the Middle East, you have these kinds of places that are frequented by desperate people needing healing. And normally there's a lot of moaning and lamentation and groaning and crying out. So it was a place of desperation. And here these people were, hoping that some miraculous thing will happen so that they can get healing. And because of that, a lot of superstition started developing in a place like that. Now it's interesting, why does Jesus go to a place like this? He walks right into the midst of this kind of place. Hardly noticed by the people because they're so consumed in their desperation, you can understand everybody's staring at the water. You can't dare take your eyes off the pool. You've got to be positioned. You've got to, there's jostling going on. People are trying to be as close as possible not only the, the, the people, but their families may be there. Some have traveled. Some have been coming there regularly every day almost for years on end, probably like the man we encounter. And they're all sitting there staring at the water because perhaps today the water will move. And if it moves, I, I need to be first so that I can get cured. Now, places like this for it to perpetuate itself and to keep its reputation, it has to, from time to time, to appear that actually somebody's getting healed. And I think we, we all know that sometimes people that are desperate enough can encounter a situation like this and do find some relief. Most often it's some emotional relief that they find in a moment like that. But the, the likelihood that actually anybody really ever got healed is very low. But people are desperate. Have you noticed how desperate people can get? And they will attach hope to anything if it promises them relief or a way out of a situation that they can do nothing about. Here we find desperate people because they were severely affected physically. Many of them were unable to walk. Many of them were probably blind, deaf, people with real struggles physically. They were desperate. They were looking for hope. The challenge is where you find desperate people, you always find others that are prepared to play on that desperation. Others that are prepared to use people's desperation for their own gain. And people, because people are desperate, They make space for superstition. They make space for perhaps something can give me what I need. And people will become superstitious. Even or perhaps often very religious people can become superstitious. Do we see that in our context? Do we notice that in South Africa in the 21st century? That we have desperate people and sometimes in their desperation, they will cross the line over from faith into superstition. Why do you think we, some pastors can sell Vaseline bottles or tubs of Vaseline with their face on it and make a lot of money? Now, from my perspective, again, I don't know everything, but by, from my perspective... The moment that stuff begins to happen, you're crossing over the line. And you're moving from faith into superstition. If I can only buy that bottle with so-and-so's face on it, which is printed in some back room somewhere by some desktop printer and just labeled onto bottles of Vaseline that was bought at Macro that suddenly now become holy Vaseline If I can just get that Vaseline, which I buy not for, you know, whatever it would be per unit at the macro, like 15 rand. Now I have to pay 100 rand. And if I can just get that Vaseline and rub it on my knee, my knee will be healed. And it's amazing. If it was true, South Africa would have no sick people. Because everybody, not everybody, but so many people buy into this. And there's this, we cannot underestimate the power of desperation and the need that people have for something that can solve their problem. And then there are many people that see a way in. And so this is the kind of thing that was going on there. I mean, we have a nation that attaches belief to the most interesting things. We think beetroot juice can cure you of certain lifelong diseases. We think, you know, that just visiting the right place at the right time or having the right person lay hands on you. And we so easily cross over into superstition. It's in the midst of this superstitious environment. No real faith in a real Messiah. Because ultimately, remember, it's not the strength of your faith that matters as much as who you have your faith in that matters. You can have really strong faith in beetroot juice. And that beetroot juice or ginger is all you need. You can have really strong faith and it can help you and it can make you feel good about things. But I can promise you, No matter how strong your faith is, if it's in the wrong thing, that thing will not help you at the end of the day. I had a friend recently in this week pass away, lifelong friend. I met him at a Hatfield youth camp in the mid-80s. And we've been friends ever since. And he contracted cancer recently. Quite an aggressive cancer. He passed away on Thursday. And I was speaking to his wife, which is also a very dear friend of ours. And she was saying, you know, one of the things that just gets to her is as they have been battling cancer and doing everything they can. Really trusting the Lord, standing in faith, standing in faith, praying for his healing. That in the midst of that, you would have people that would come and with all good intentions and with good hearts, they will come and tell you of the latest miracle cure. That if they can only get that cure, he will be healed. And she said, like somebody said, you need to find the inside of peaches. Peach pips that have inside that little thing. If you can find enough of those and he can eat them, he will be healed. And she goes, That really doesn't help me when I'm in a struggle like this. It really doesn't help me. I don't know where to get peach pips. And really, you know, I cannot afford to run after every person's cure that they think I should do. I'm, I'm fighting every day just to keep my own sanity to keep two businesses going, to keep my family secure while I've got a husband that is lying in bed and, and I'm fighting emotionally, I'm fighting in every space and I'm hanging on with my fingernails to the Lord Jesus and I'm trusting him for healing. Whether that healing happens on this side of the grave or whether that healing happens in eternity, that's up to the Lord, that's not for me to decide. But I know that Jesus will heal him. I'm hanging, I cannot run after peach pips also. Well-meaning people, in desperation, can grab onto anything. And Jesus knows that. It's amazing about Jesus that he goes to that place. And what we see in his behavior is not the same as he did in the temple where he braided a whip and lashed out at the people Here he goes and sits and talks with these desperate people. He asks them, what's your story? And he's just talking with people. Until for some other reason, his heart's captured by the story of this man that's been in this state for 38 years. And Jesus asks him this question, do you want to get well? Now, at first read, that may seem like a bit of a strange question to ask people in that environment. It's like going to a hospital, visiting the ward where all the sick people are lying, and then saying to them, does any of you want to get well? Of course, what's the answer going to be? Yes, we want to get well. Why does Jesus sit, kneel with this man, sits by him, talking with him, hearing his story, getting some of the, the facts, the the reality of what he's been experiencing. And then Jesus says, do you want to get well? Because what Jesus is doing, probably while he's been talking to this man, the man's not looking at Jesus, he's looking at the water the whole time. He's staring at the water saying, just now it moves. And I, Listen friend, I, I, I'll, it's great, I'll talk to you, but I can't afford to miss my opportunity. He's not recognizing who it is speaking to him. He's so caught up in his superstition, so caught up in his desire and his need and his desperation and the false hope and faith that he's attached to this moving water that he doesn't recognize that the healer is talking to him. The creator of everything, the Messiah. So Jesus is trying to redirect his attention. Jesus is trying to draw his attention away from the superstition to say, do you want to get well? I love that about Jesus. I think that's what he's still doing today here in South Africa in, with all of our superstitions, many that are colored in religious language and with religious overtones, but are actually just superstitions. Jesus comes and sits with a person like that and he says, do you want to get well? He doesn't condemn them or ju- He understands their desperation. But what he also doesn't do he has no T's and C's that applies. He doesn't say, do you want to get well? If you want to get well, then uh, buy my Vaseline. Or I've got this oil that was made with the real ingredients from Israel. That if you get this oil, or Okay, can I ask you say first, we love you, Pastor Louis. Those on radio and television, on, on, we love you. Thank you very much. I'll take that. Oh, we've got these crystals. That God made crystals with healing powers, and if you bring the crystals into you, Jesus doesn't do that because we need nothing between us and Jesus. We don't need some superstitious element. We don't need something to come to. We just need Jesus. So Jesus sits next to him and he whispers in the man's ear while the man's staring at the water. And he says, do you want to get well? The man doesn't even say yes. He doesn't say yes, I want to get well and looks at Jesus. He's looking at the water. Jesus said, when you get well, he says, yes, but my problem is nobody wants to help me get into this water when it moves. He's thinking, perhaps Jesus is going to be kind enough to hang around with him for a day or two, to wait till the water moves, and perhaps Jesus will pick him up and put him in the water. You see, sometimes we come to Jesus and we say, if only Jesus will help me get to the thing that I'm putting my faith in. If only Jesus will get me to the thing that I believe is my answer. And we miss. It's the Messiah saying, Do you want to get well? I find it fantastic that Jesus did not, if I understand this story correct, did not even require faith from this man. He didn't say to the man, Do you believe? The man kept staring at the water. And Jesus, looking at his ear, just quietly, he doesn't say, Come, Mike, come play on the piano. Let's get the mood settled. (laughs) Or Razan, come and play, and you know, let's let's get the spirit. He doesn't say, Everybody, quiet, I'm going to do a miracle. In the busyness, in the moaning that's going on at that pool, he just whispers, probably, or just talks to the man and he says, Get up. You are healed. The Messiah has arrived on the scene. The Messiah has stepped in. And he is not playing on human desperation. He's not abusing human desperation. He's simply saying, I'm here. I am the healer. Stop looking elsewhere. In verse 7. Sir, the invalid of pride, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down before, ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. At once. No, no, listen, you didn't put the Vaseline on the right place. You, you know, you actually need two bottles. For you, my friend, special discount 175 Rand. Not 200 Rand for two bottles of Vaseline. I've got compassion for you, I'll give you the Vaseline for cheaper. None of that. At once. He's staring at the water and he's going, something's happening. What's this? What's going on? Huh? What? How many of you know he then looked at Jesus? Suddenly he didn't look for the bubbling of the water. He looked at Jesus. Something happened. Because the Messiah has come. What is John recording? Why is John recording this for us? Because simply what John is saying is, The Messiah has come. Stop looking for authority in places where it does not exist. Stop looking at things that proclaim and claim that they will solve your problems. They are not going to solve your problems. Look at the Messiah. See the Messiah. The Messiah has come. Now I know this for a fact. I know this, that Jesus heals. Physical healing still happens today. Amen? 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 Come on. I know people in this building. I know people in this building that says Jesus healed me. I know somebody sitting right back there, Cancer, says Jesus healed me. Now, as a church, we will not proclaim. Listen, can I tell you It's my belief when it comes to healings, miracles of healing in our community? It's not my story to tell. It's their story to tell. So if they want to tell it, we will give them opportunity to tell it. I'm not going to claim that miracle. Even if I prayed for them, I'm not going to say, look, I prayed for so and so. They got healed. Because I, normally I'm not the only one that prayed for them. And if it was by my prayer that they got healed, that's Jesus' business. The glory belongs to Him. I'm not going to make a show of healing in this church. I'm not going to get desperate people lined up and say, we're going to pray for you to be healed. We trust God for your healing and we will pray for you. But it's God's healing power. And it happens today. I know that for a fact. But I also know for a fact that everybody we pray for doesn't get healed in this life. I've sat around enough deathbeds with people as a Christian people. And you know, sometimes our role as pastors is when we sit with people that are busy dying in their families. We have to help them live well to the end. And living well to the end is, on the one hand, to say, I believe Jesus will heal me. And I believe it with all my heart. And I'm trusting God. And we're praying. We're fasting. We have communion. We read scripture. We do everything we can to claim the healing power of Jesus. And on the other hand, by living well in the end is, how's my family? Do I do I?" give them permission to let me go do i facilitate it to make it as easy as possible for them do we can we talk about the issues of the will and you know all these things that need to happen because you know what we trust jesus in life and we trust him in death and it's people of faith can hold those two together it's not an either or I can trust Jesus at the same time for the complete healing of somebody I'm praying for and I can also trust Jesus that if this person dies and goes to be with the Lord that he is still their healer. Because no more sickness, no more pain. I'm sorry, I don't have the authority to decide between those two. That's reserved for the Father. I don't have neat answers for all of that. I know there's people that claim that if they pray for you you've got a 90% chance of getting healed. I, I struggle. I'm just being real with you. Can we, do we want to see more people healed? Can you join with me and pray and trust God for more people to be healed? But I'm going to be very careful with that. Because that's desperation. And we, all we can do is bring them to Jesus. And I could tell you lots of stories about that, but let me, let me move on. Jesus comes and He says, I'm your healer. Now what is the first thing we need to be healed of? What is our primary sickness? Not a physical ailment. Sin is our primary sickness. Ultimately, the thing that incapacitates us, the thing that destroys us, that hurts us, the thing where we should really be desperate about is our sin. You see, we, we, we get physically ill or in some financial problem, then we get desperate But any believer that's walked with the Lord for a period of time knows that your actual desperation is, Jesus has healed me from my sinfulness. And he has saved me. He has forgiven me. He has removed the guilt and the shame from me. He has proven his love to me. We don't stand before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, if you love me, you will heal me from my disease. We say, thank you, Lord. You have proven your love to me at Calvary. That is the greatest display of your love. My sin is forgiven. Thank you that because you love me, I can trust you for my healing today. Because you said healing is the children's bread. I can stand and trust you for healing today, Lord. And I can, I can drink the medicine, but I can trust you for healing, Jesus. And I hold on to your healing power because you love me. That's settled. You're not having to prove it to me. Jesus came into the world to heal us of our primary disease. Sin. But Jesus stands with this man and he says to this man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. What a fantastic miracle. The man knows that he's been healed because he can get up, he he rolls up his bed and he begins to walk away from that place. Healed. That was probably noticed by the other people. Suddenly, people were. Now, I don't know what they all did with that. Some went, Did we miss the moving of the water? What happened? Some started paying attention to this person that healed him. But the focus shifts on this man as he's walking away, he gets into trouble. In verse 9. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews, Jewish leaders, said to the man, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you from carrying your mat. (laughs) Come on, that's hilarious. (laughs) I mean, how dare you carry your bed? There's no attention given to the fact This man is walking. This man that has been for 38 years in a desperate state has been healed. They go like, well, that's fantastic, but why are you carrying your bed? He broke the Sabbath law. When the temple was destroyed in the time of the Babylonians, the Sabbath became the cornerstone of the Jewish institutional religious life. They couldn't go to the temple anymore. So the chief way a Jew displayed their Jewishness and and kept in line with the Jewish law which qualified them ultimately as to be a righteous person in right standing with God is how they treated the Sabbath. The fourth commandment became like the chief way a Jew lived their lives, was all organized around the Sabbath. And you had varying degrees of people how seriously they took the Sabbath. But in in general, a Jewish person, the Sabbath was their greatest festival and their greatest institution that they had to keep every week in every home. So it was a huge stronghold for religious power and authority. And remember I told you that what the Pharisees did is when they saw a command like the fourth command, you will keep the Sabbath. What they did is they wanted to make sure that nobody got close to breaking that law. So they built a whole bunch of laws like a fence around this law. And that was recorded in the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there were 39 categories of laws of things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath to stop you from getting close to breaking the law. And so when when, when this man picks up his bed, he's actually breaking one of the headline of the 39 categories. You cannot be, carry your bed on a Sabbath. It was described. Do you think Jesus was being a bit aspress? Purposeful in making sure that they all saw that one of the 39 laws, categories, head categories of the laws around the Sabbath was being broken. So the other man carries his bed in verse 11. But he replied, The man who made me, made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. It's interesting. The title of my message today is Authority in Christ. Because this is what's going on. He used to find authority in the bubbling of the water superstitiously. Can you see what happened? He shifted his authority to Jesus now. And he said... Surely the man who made me well is worth listening to. He must have some authority. Because when they ask him, why are you carrying your bed? He says, the man who made me well, he's assuming that this man who healed me must have some authority. He told me I'm allowed to carry my bed. He said, I can carry my bed. So they asked him, who, does this, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? What gives him the authority to tell you you can carry your bed? What qualifies him? Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Note that, please. I don't have time to talk about that. What is the greatest problem that mankind has? Sin. Sin. We can cure every disease. We can find a, 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 a cure, and it will be fantastic to find a cure for cancer. I will be first in the row to support if that can happen. We can, we can cure every disease. We can, we can cure every problem. But let me tell you, sin is our deepest problem. And sin manifests itself. Ultimately, nations fall because of sin. Not Corruption. Corruption is an expression of sin. Sin is the great. Jesus says to this man, You're healed now. You see, now the problem is he's got legs. He can go and do more wrong than he's ever been able to do. <laughs> so Jesus says to him, Listen, just because you've got legs now, don't run into sin. That's your greatest problem. Ultimately, that's what you need to come to me for. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now he recognizes Jesus, and now he becomes the tattletale, and he tells them. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Jesus is on trial. Remember when I told you when Jesus said to his mother, my hour is not yet come, because he was knowing that the moment he did his first public miracle, the, the timer starts clicking, or, or, or the timer starts running down on, one, on, on his ultimate Crucifixion. Now already he's on trial. Now already he's beginning to fight for his life. He's beginning to enter into a conflict with the Jewish leaders. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, they had a view of authority. I've got a slide that we can put on the screen, guys, if you don't mind. Yeah. Let me just get it in front of me here. There we go. So, to be a person in right standing with God, you needed to have authority tell you that you're in right standing with God. So a Jewish person, you can put that first triangle. So a Jewish person lived their life with a desire to be a person in right standing with God, as they understood it the authority they lived under that would make them believe that they were in right standing with God was the Jewish institutions. Festivals, laws, all the Jewish institutions. You can put the next. Just keep going with me, guys. It's the observance of the institutions. As long as they observed these institutions, like the Sabbath, that provided the authority that that a Jewish person could claim, I am a Jew, a righteous Jew, because I am keeping the observance. What gave the observance authority was the Jewish leaders, the rulers. Because the rulers were the ones that were interpreting the laws. They took the Ten Commandments and the written commandments of the Old Testament and they would interpret them and they would build more laws around them and they would refine the law and they would apply the law. They would tell you, are you allowed to save your cow on a Sabbath or not? Is it, a, is it, con- is it seen as a work of God? Is it not seen as a work of God? They, they would judge all the time. They would f- refine and refine and refine and refine. And so they became the ones that had the authority. That told you how to observe the laws of God. So you were under their authority. What gave them authority was the written law. So they interpreted the law. The scripture talks about the oral law. So they had the oral law. The oral law was based on the written law. And what gave the written law its authority ultimately was God. So this is the authority structure a religious person operates under. It, it, it's the, it, it was present in the Jewish time, but let me tell you, any religion operates on the same structure. That's how religion works. If, if you want to call yourself a good person according to any religious standard, it is because you are submitting to its institutions. You pray five times a day, you wash these many times, you don't do this, you wear, it, you wear this, you do all of that. It's the observance. That observance is given to you by its rulers, its leaders. They get it from their written scripture that is inspired in some way that they believe. And that ultimately they believe comes from God. So Jesus walks into this system. (laughs) And he says, I don't play by your rules. It doesn't work the same way for me. And in fact, God never intended it to work like this for you either. And so what Jesus does, we can go to the second slide there, second part of that. Jesus says, I am God. That top triangle, that's me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three co-equal, three persons co-equal, one in essence, one in substance. I don't have time to talk about the Trinity. If you ever find somebody neatly explaining to you the Trinity, they're lying. You ca- we, we have not found a perfect explanation. Do you know partly why? Because there are no trinities running around on earth that we can point to to say, that's a trinity. It is something we'll only understand in heaven one day. Three in one. But we don't worship three gods, we worship one God. When we sing a worship song, we don't have to worry, am I singing enough to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit, or is the Father feeling left out? Because they three in one. When I worship Jesus, I'm worshiping the Father and I'm worshiping the Spirit all at the same time. Okay, let's move on. So Jesus says, I am the Son of God. Your whole structure is about me. And I'm, I want to tell you right now that you have made so much about your structure that you're missing me. So he says to them in, in Mark, it's recorded in Mark 2. He says, The Sabbath is for the man, the man is not for the Sabbath. He's saying, I made you. And yes, Jesus did not come to say Sabbath has no value. He didn't come to destroy the Sabbath idea. He came to say that your observance of the Sabbath laws does not give you authority. The authority to be in right standing with me comes from me. You diligently study the scriptures you'll read later in this batch. But yet you refuse to come to me. You get so caught up in religion to try and make sure that you're doing everything by the rules. So that hopefully you will please God. Jesus comes and says, here I am. Come to me. Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary, tired, burnt out on religion. Burnt out on trying how to please God. Let me show you. Come to me. So the same problem he was having with the man that was staring at the water bubbling and going, I can't, I can't pay attention to you now because I don't want to miss the water bubbling. It's the same problem he was having with the Jewish leaders. We, we're so looking at the law. We're trying to observe every minute detail. We can't pay attention to you now. We've got to study the law. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, woo-hoo, the whole reason for the law is me. I'm here. Pay attention to me. But they're so caught up in it. And now he starts challenging their authority. What do people in governments do with a whistleblower? Jesus is a whistleblower. He's starting to say, not, that's not a perfect analogy. Don't take it too far. But he's starting to point fingers at this whole system. and He's saying, it's corrupt. It's corrupt. It's failing. It's promising much, but it's under-delivering. It's promised you fruit, but it cannot give you the fruit that you think it should. Stop wasting your life. Stop giving your life to this. He's starting to whistleblow. And what do leaders do when somebody whistle blows? They throw the book at them. They get the law out. Pfft. The law that they're not prepared to live by, but the law they want everybody else to. They use that law to beat somebody into submission. And that's what the Pharisees begin to do with Jesus. They throw the book at him. And they start charging him with blasphemy. They, they, at some places you'll read, they call him Lucifer. You are the devil. I mean, what an insult to Jesus. They throw the book at him. If the book doesn't work, what do they then do? They kill you. Doesn't it say here they try to kill Jesus? Because he's beginning to point out the failure. He's saying, no, you can't keep doing this. There is no authority in this. Not the authority you ascribe to it. You see, we still do that today. Good meaning people, desperate people that want to be in right standing with God. All try and play the game and figure out how much must I go to church? Must I give my tithe or must I not give my tithe? Can I say this or can't I say that? You know, is it is it right to do this or is it right to do that? And and you find it with Christians. You know, you're trying to cut the law as fine as you can. Can I sleep with my girlfriend before we married? Surely, if we love one another and we've promised that we will get married, it's good enough. We can now sleep together. And we try and, oh, now it got quiet in this church. We're married, yes. You know, it's good. Can I, can I, you know, and we and we miss the whole point. We play the religious game. Jesus stood in front of them and said, Come to me. I will give you life. Now Let me apply this quickly and then I need to end in this way. Jesus wasn't saying a Christian shouldn't have a sense of Sabbath. He's just saying you cannot make your Sabbath behavior the institution that gives you the authority in your life that tells you you're a fruitful believer or not. But because you have come to me and you are now with me, there are certain patterns in your life that will begin to change and you will live different. And one of those patterns will be that you will develop a rhythm in your life. Put that last slide up, guys, please, of the semicircle. You will develop a rhythm of your life, which he describes in John 15, between living from abiding to fruitfulness. From abiding to fruitfulness. The Christian Sunday cannot be compared to the Sabbath as these people understood it at all. It's not the same thing they were doing the sabbath to try and earn god's favor we hold a day as precious we call it the lord's day because of what he has done for us and you know what we do when we have a sunday for instance we do we say it's not a law for us it's not about can i do homework on a sabbath can i but it's about this to say lord i want to make sure in everything you are first i draw aside and i abide in you and for us, remember, the Sunday is actually the beginning of a week. I start my week with you so that from that place fruitfulness can flow. I'll talk more about it in the future, I don't have time. As I believe as a Christian, I believe I should have a sense of Sabbath in my life. But not a law. Because that's good living. It's that understanding I draw aside come to Jesus and I say Lord teach me your ways it's so good to have a day at least in a week and we live in a a culture that has basically adopted this now we're starting to lose it again but it affords us a space to say you can have this day but as Christians we should honor it and go how do I abide how do I put a limitation on my work and I know there's people Christians that are in retail and you may have to work on Sundays, the mall's laws. and I understand of that and that's why it's not a law. But should you still find a space where you can go, but this is now my time where I draw aside? I think it's just good life and good practice. I think it's good to have those things. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I want more of him. I want to make sure that I'm not so distracted by my superstitions and my religious religiosity that I'm missing him in my ear. I want to stop on a regular basis and go, Jesus, let me just quiet all the noise. I just want to make sure I'm hearing you. Is that okay? Won't you stand with me? There's like a whole lot in that scripture that We don't have time to do. I'm going to ask you two questions. Those of you that are online, those of you that are listening on the radio. First question is, are you desperate? Is there a need that you have that you're desperately looking just for help with? That's real. We all get to that place. For some of us, a a big portion of our lives are lived right there at the pool hoping for something to happen. Are you desperate? The second question is, are you burnt out on religion? Are you tired of trying to earn? The good news I want to tell you today, which John is basically telling us, the highest authority in the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the answer for your desperation and the one who says, come to me, learn from me. Let me show you how to live, has given you free access to him. You don't need to go via Vaseline or a crystal. You don't need to keep somebody's religious law. Is there a law in God? Yes. Does the scripture have something to say about sex before marriage? Yes, it's very clear. Sex belongs within a marriage. Not even the hour before you get married. It belongs in the marriage. A marriage is constituted by a couple agreeing that they want to be together for all time and exclusively. And they make that pledge before a community that says, hold me accountable for this. That's what I believe. That's what I live. And that's not a judgment. That's just good living. So is there things in God that we want to get right? Yes, but not from a place of external observance and trying to please God because a pastor said I can't do it. Now I can't do it. But because the law is written on my heart, I want to live right with God. But to know that I have free access to Him By his word and by his spirit. So are you desperate? Let me pray for that first. Father, I thank you that we as human beings can easily come to a place and often where we're just so desperate. I recognize that here today there are desperate people. And we can just have empathy for that desperation. Whether that's the desperation for healing for, for financial provision, for relational restoration, for a job. Lord, I thank you and I, I recognize the desperation of people. But I pray, Lord, that in their desperation, people will not waste time and energy and give in and give hope to things that can never promise what it, hope, deliver what it's promising them. Lord, I pray that superstition will not capture us and and deceive us in Jesus' name. I pray in this room right now, and for those that are with me on this message, any person that has been caught in superstition right now, I break the power of superstition in the Spirit in Jesus' name. If you have participated in activities that right now you feel the Holy Spirit stirring to you, and you know it's superstition, can I ask you to say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I break the power of superstition in my life in Jesus' name. It's very important that you take that authority. Because you have been given authority over your own life. Lord, I will not put my hope in some superstitious thing. No matter what who's told me, I come to you, Lord Jesus. The giver of life. And then, Lord, I pray for people that have been playing the religious game. That are burnt out on trying to do the right thing, not because it's in their heart, but because they're just trying to please you. I pray, Lord, for a, and I completely understand that I have such compassion for that also. I can see myself from time to time wanting to do that. But I pray today for, a, for your spirit of truth. I pray that they will hear your voice saying, come to me. Come to me. Perhaps it's harder to come to Jesus than it is to try and keep a law externally. Because Jesus will talk to you about things that a law can never address in your life. Jesus said, if you so much as look upon a woman, if you so much as think, he goes deeper than any law can. But with him, abiding with him, there's real fruitfulness. And so I pray for us, Lord, that you would help us to abide with you. To come to you and to stay with you. To not be deceived and distracted. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 I want to encourage you this morning, if you want prayer, please come to the front. You can reach out to us on the digital platforms also. If you need prayer, if you want to say, I have chased after other things, but I want to give my life to Jesus, then tell the person that's going to pray for you and they will help you with that and pray for you with that. Please remember those of you that are interested to go to the Connect Lounge, may the Lord bless you and those of you that wants to fulfill in the cards or haven't given them, please remember to do that. But the Lord bless you, the Lord go with you and may His presence be very near to you throughout this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.